Hey, this drink is delicious, and my phlegm feels looser. What do you call it? Well, it's called a flaming mo. It's called a flaming mo. That's right, a flaming mo. My name is Mo, and I invented it. That's why it's called a flaming mo. Hello, and welcome to the Simpsons Countdown, the podcast in which we go back to the beginning and watch all of the Simpsons tracing the creative evolution of the series and counting down to find the exact moment in which it began its downhill journey into irrelevance. I'm Eric's Antoine, and this week I'm joined by fellow podcaster Sean Malloy, whose show I Must Break This Podcast examines the career of Dolph Lundgren. He's not here to discuss Lundgren, though he may come up in conversation, but mainly we'll be discussing Flaming Moe which originally aired on November 21st, 1991. It was written by Robert Cohen and directed by Rich Moore and Alan Smart. In this episode, Homer tells Moe about his invented drink, the Flaming Homer, a cocktail that includes cop syrup as a secret ingredient. The drink turns out to be pretty amazing, so Moe steals the idea for himself and begins selling it under a new name, which results in great fame for Mo and success for his business. Meanwhile, Homer is resentful and eventually vows to get revenge. This classic episode features Aerosmith in a fun cameo, as well as an inspired Cheers parody about halfway through. In a minute, Sean and I are going to get into it. So without further ado, here we go. Take some consolation in the fact that something you created is making so many people happy. Oh, look at me. I'm making people happy. I'm the magical man from Happy Land in a gumdrop house at Lollipop Lane. Oh, by the way, I was being sarcastic. Well, duh. Hey, so welcome, Sean. Uh, this is uh, welcome to the podcast. First time here. Uh, so it's kind of it's cool to have you. You know, uh, here talking about Simpsons. How you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, this is uh, this is pretty cool, actually. I think I think this is the first podcast I've been on where I'm not talking about an action movie, actually. So I'm I'm stepping a little bit outside of my comfort zone. So so thank mm-hmm. you for that. Oh well, you're very welcome. And you know, I mean, if if it should come up in the conversation, if it, like if any if it should arise, if the topic of action films should arise in this conversation, there's nothing wrong with that. So we do here. Um, but you know, this is your first time on the podcast, and we we spoke online a while back when you know it, it, we sort of floated the idea of you coming on. I'm of course a very big admirer of what you do. Over there with the uh, I Must Break This this podcast. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm also an admirer of Dolph Lundgren, as you are. And that's what your <laughs> podcast is all about. So it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I didn't know that you were a Simpsons fan, but apparently uh, you are. And so I kind of wanted to, since this is the first time that you're coming on here, I kind of wanted to... What's your relationship uh, with The Simpsons? If you can maybe run us through that. Like, what's your personal relationship with The Simpsons? Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you asked me that, actually, because this particular episode really brought me back. I actually um, watched it twice in preparation for our conversation. And like I said, it really brought me back to a time 
in which I was a Simpsons fanatic. Now, I will I will admit right now, um, I was a Simpsons fan, not so much anymore, but I was a Simpsons fan in those early seasons. So I'd say from about season one till about, I don't know, maybe five or six or so. Basically, I, I essentially just outgrew it, but I distinctly and vividly remember um, watching it. I mean, this film came, or excuse me, this, this series, the show premiered and came out um, right at that sweet spot in my youth. So I watched it, I want to say, from when I was in about first grade, okay, so when I was about seven years old, up through the time I was about 12 or so. Okay, so that's, what is that, first grade through about sixth grade. And then I just, I slowly just kind of outgrew it. You know, I, I, would, I would dip in and out, you know, throughout my, uh, throughout my middle school and my high school years and everything like that. But um, like I said, I just, I really kind of outgrew it. But yeah, those early seasons, man, were, I mean, I was, I mean, it was Bartmania, if you remember. I mean, 1990 through oh, yeah. 93. I mean, my goodness, it was, it was Bartmania. And when I said it, I, it was at that sweet spot. I mean, it was, you know, Bart was that, that kid. He was that rebellious kid that all the kids in my grade school were wearing uh, uh, his, his image on, on our t-shirts or whatever. And I distinctly remember, I mean, you'd probably know better than I would, but um, I, the, 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 the years that I watched it was when it was on Thursday nights on Fox. And so I vividly remember coming home from swim practice. I was, you know, I was on a swim team when I was a real little kid. And so coming home from swim practice, racing home, this is before the age of DVR and whatnot. Okay. Racing home um, to plop in front of the TV at 7 PM to uh, catch the latest episode. And, and the episode that we're talking about today, uh, uh, Flame and Moe's, this is one uh, that I vividly remember racing home to watch on a Thursday evening uh, right after swim practice. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I haven't watched prior to the invitation uh, that, that you gave me, I haven't watched a Simpsons episode in gosh, 20 years, I'd say maybe. And so going back, you know, I really appreciated it because, you know, to be perfectly honest, if I was going to go back and watch a Simpsons episode, it's going to be probably one of the early ones from one of those early seasons from when I was a kid. I would much rather go back and watch an episode from this uh, fr- from this early period than I would any of the uh, any of the seasons within the past 10 years any day. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you uh, loud and clear. And the thing is, that's basically that's basically my situation. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, so uh, I began to watch it. You know, I was older than seven years old when it premiered, and so uh, I watched it throughout my my middle school years and through high school, much like you. Till you know, from about season one through about season, I watched it pretty regularly till about season eight or nine, and then you know, uh, slowly started tapering off, dropping off for various reasons. But uh, much like you, I have not actually watched a first run. I have not watched a first run episode of The Simpsons in about 15 or 20 years, uh, much like you. So so it is essentially, I, I hear you. I hear you. And, if, and what I'm trying to do here with this podcast in a way now that I, you know, is to sort of go back. And because this is, this is a venerated television institution, right? And so now that it's all basically available for our consumption on Disney Plus, 
what I realized was, well, now, you know, the whole thing is there and I can actually go back and watch it and relive some of those moments, you know, relive some of my favorite episodes from when I used to watch it regularly. So there's an opportunity to do that. But there's also an opportunity to sort of uh, trace its evolution, you know, trace its evolution as a series, its creative evolution from the first season on through the seasons. And then to find that kind of breaking point, you know, because I know like from from anecdotal evidence, people talking to me about it, everyone says that it quote unquote sucks now. Well, I wouldn't know because I haven't watched it. And the few times that I have maybe grabbed one, like just a a random episode that's airing some night and it's like from one of the later seasons. Yeah, I've been a little bit like, yeah, this is not as good as what I remember. You know, this is not a very good show anymore. Clearly people have a point. But I would like to actually see where that breaking point happened. And I I suspect that that breaking point is sort of coincides with the end of the decade of the 90s that as it went from the 90s into the 2000s things began to kind of taper off because as the cultural environment around the simpsons changes and as the simpsons itself sort of starts to go beyond like it's no longer the innovative uh, piece of television that it was so many other shows by that point have already come, whether it's South Park or even Family Guy or anything else that sort of took its ball and ran with it. By that point, I think that it no longer is the cutting edge television show that it was for much of its first 10 years. And so I think it makes sense that at that point things start to break off. And so I want to see that for myself. And that's kind of the purpose of this podcast and, and you know, what I decided to do. So, so I hear you completely. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you loud and clear. Now, do you remember, do you remember watching this show when it, by that, I mean this, this specific episode, do you remember watching this episode when it aired? Oh, vividly, vividly. I mean that when you, when you gave me the list of, uh, the list of episodes, um, I didn't even, I mean, cause I remember you gave me the list of season three episodes and I didn't even have to go online to jog my memory as to the plot of this particular one. As soon as I saw the title Flaming Moes, I distinctly, I remember the, the exact plot of this one. I remember the, uh, the, the overall conflict of this one um, in my brain, ingrained in my brain was the image of uh, Homer at the bar at the end with his bathrobe covering half his face, trying to be Phantom mm-hmm. of the Opera. I, you know, right. I distinctly remember um, that image as well. You know, and going back and watching this episode, there were two, for me at least, there were two really big takeaways from this that, uh, that, that I really noticed on, on my viewing. One is how rudimentary and somewhat shabby the animation still was in season three. Now, compared to uh, compared to season one, I mean, the, the the animation in season three, at least in this episode, is ten times better. But there's something really endearing about the animation around this time, especially compared to the animation in the uh, in the later seasons and some of the more recent episodes. And what, what's really interesting about this, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not either. But when I say, you know, rudimentary and fairly shabby, I mean, if you watch it, I mean, this is obviously before the age of CGI. This is obviously before the age of, uh, you know, where they are um, animating everything by way of computers. So everything is still hand drawn. And so what was what I noticed (laughs) really what I kept locking in on is just how 
like the background, you know, the background images within within the animation are moving. Like, for example, as like Bart and Homer are walking across the living room, you, you'll see the, the couch. For example, the couch is still kind of moving or whatever, because it's still that traditional hand-drawn cell yeah. animation. And to me, that was just so endearing to see that compared to the animation. I mean, I will admit, I like I said, I haven't seen any of the uh, any of the episodes within the past 10, 12 years or so, but I did see the movie. And the animation in the movie, don't get me wrong, I don't want to mitigate it. It's 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 amazing animation, but it's so much more crisp, it's so much more clear. You know what? I, I, I said it, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat myself. I'd much rather go back and watch some of the shabby hand-drawn stuff from these early seasons than the more recent stuff and call it look maybe it's because of nostalgia on my behalf maybe it's because of um i just i i like the 90s better than i do i don't know but um that was one of my big takeaways uh watching this and you're right i mean the definitely the animation is still rough in comparison to of course the movie which was done in a very cinematic way uh, at the time. However, uh, one thing about the movie, I do think that by the time the movie came along, like by that time, I was no longer a regular viewer of the show. I still yeah, liked I it. I still had fond memories of it. I still caught it now and then. But, you know, and obviously the reruns, I'd be watching them. But it, like as far as like watching a, a new a first run episode, it, by that point, it would barely happen. But of course, I was very excited about seeing the movie and going to see it because I figured, oh, it's a, you know, it's a big deal. And, and so I went to see the movie and I liked the movie and the, the movie does have much crisper, much more cinematic animation. But then, like, I've, I've caught glimpses of it on TV since then. And I think that they started to apply that same polish to the TV show itself. Like, you know, it, it may not be framed in that same widescreen sort of, you know, the, the 235 aspect ratio. But in terms of the quality, I think it is now like that. It is crisp and, and, and you know, shiny and slick in that way. The, the other big takeaway that I got from this episode is just how lean the narrative structure is of this, uh, you know, of, of the, how lean the storytelling is of this. I mean, you know, well, what's interesting about this is, um, and I, again, this is something that I really never picked up on uh, when I first watched the show. Okay. But. Okay, in 20 minutes, I mean, because if you, if you want to take out the, the, the commercials and the credits and all that, yeah. the, the episode is about 20 minutes or so. So within 20 minutes, basically, you have, yeah. yeah, basically, yeah, you have Homer inventing a drink, Mo stealing the, uh, the recipe for that drink, mm -hmm. he, him becoming famous to where Mo's is suddenly this, uh, this, this huge chain that's making the news for everything. All right, it latches on, it becomes a huge success. Uh, Suddenly, Homer outs the, uh, the 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 recipe for this thing, and everything goes back to normal. And Homer and Mo are able to, you know, rekindle and reestablish their friendship. I mean, and so what's interesting about this? Okay, if you wanted to put this in real life, for that matter, okay, the, that entire uh, progression would be, I don't know, three four years maybe. I, you know, I'm, I'm just spitballing. And they do this all in 20 minutes to where. Theoretically, you're watching the episode and it takes place over maybe two, maybe three days. It feels that way anyway. Yeah, it feels that way. The thing is that realistically, this series of events, as you said, it, in real life and even in like a movie, even in any kind of story, 
the kind of the progression of events in this story would take place over maybe not years, but certainly several months. Oh yeah, you know, okay. like like cer- certainly right. And I guess the implication is that this story takes place over at least a couple of months. Although it feels, because of the speed at which they tell the story, it does feel like just a couple of days. And and they're not very clear, honestly. The timeline of the episode is not very clear. And I don't know that it matters. I think the idea, like, is what you said. It's about the leanness of it. It's a very Mm -hmm. compact story where a lot is going on. It's a it's a story of friendship. It's a story of a broken friendship. It's a story of, of you know, let's call it corporate intrigue. It's a story like there's all this stuff that's going on in the story, right? But the I mean the basics of the story are pretty simple, as you said. It's just it's Homer invents a drink, Mo steals the drink, and that's it. You know that, that's but that's the premise. That's and then, it. You know Homer Homer eventually you know gets vengeance on Mo for stealing the drink. Uh, Mo regrets uh, screwing Homer over. He he's about to make things right. But unfortunately, Homer sort of stops him from doing it. So it is a pretty basic story, but um, there's a leanness to it. And that's what we're starting to see here in the third season. We're starting to see them kind of move away from the more traditional sitcom structure and really start to spread their wings a bit and tell stories that are a bit more ambitious. Uh, We're also seeing how... Homer is really becoming the main character of the show, becoming the central character. Yeah. This is this is the season in which they really start to find their identity as a series because in the first two seasons it was sort of like this this thing where they're juggling the idea of being an animated sitcom, following traditional sitcom tropes but doing it animated. They're still juggling the idea of like well, you know, it's it's not a kids show, but the central character, the marquee character the, you know, the breakout character is Bart. So even though it's not really a kid's show, we sort of are focusing everything around Bart, and, you know, and so that was, ju- they were juggling that for the first two seasons. By the time you get here, they're already pretty much abandoning that concept. And you're not really getting too many stories where Bart is the central character. He's got his scenes. He's always there. Of course, there will be plenty of episodes where he's still, where he's the central character, him or Lisa or whoever. But they're starting to realize that if you start to focus all your energy on Homer, if you start to focus the stories on him, build them around him, then that opens you up. You can, you know, you can tell more interesting stories because he's an adult. There's more things he can, you can do with him. You know, you can just do more. And on top of that, they've already established a world. They're starting, you know, in two seasons that they've established Springfield as a world and all these other supporting characters. So you start to really sort of mind that, you know, they're like, well, you know, we've got the bartender, Mo. He hasn't done anything for the first two seasons. He's basically just the butt of jokes. He's a background character, essentially. Let's have something. Let's have a an episode where he's the linchpin, you know. And so you start to see that. I think with this episode, you've already seen a couple, you know, where, where they've been spreading out beyond the family. But... Here you, you really like they really do that. This episode is really built around Mo and all of that, and and uh, it really fleshes him out in ways that other episodes have not done so in the past. You know, you see um, when halfway through the episode they throw in a Cheers parody, yeah, and that's built in. It's baked into the episode because that waitress that he hires, it's Diane from Cheers. It's that's what it is. Very clearly, that's what they're doing, 
And in those moments, Mo, very unlikely, but they do it anyway, essentially becomes like Sam from Cheers. And you go, yeah. Mo, really? Like, okay, you know, good for him. But like, it's it's a bit unlikely, it's a bit improbable, but they somehow make that work. The fact that he is a bit of, there is chemistry between him and the waitress. And the, the, the whole Sam and Diane thing, they take it to its, to its logical conclusion. And, you know, halfway through the episode, Mo and this waitress are in bed together. And you go like, really? Mo? Like, okay. And so it's <laughs> interesting. It, I, just, I found that interesting. I was like, they, they went all the way with it. But Mo is not a Sam um, analog. He absolutely is not. Mo is not a Sam analog. But they make him that for this episode. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I couldn't help but wonder. Um, and again, I, I, when I talked about earlier about how there were certain images of this episode that were ingrained within my brain. That was the other part where the, uh, was the cheers parody where they're parodying the, uh, the opening title sequence to cheers. Yeah. And I couldn't help but wonder if that was also, I mean, because correct me if I'm wrong, but when, when Simpsons was on, it was competing against cheers on Thursday nights. Was it not? Uh, I don't No, No, it was competing against, it's time slot when they moved it because it started out on Sunday nights. The first season was Sunday nights. And then they decided for the second season, Thursday nights, which, which they, you and know, that's when I was watching it. Yeah. Right. Right. And James L. Brooks, you know, he was like, no, no, let's not do that. You know, we're in a good place right now. We've got good ratings. You put us on Thursday nights, you're going to kill us. You know, Cosby's going to destroy us. And that's the end of it. But you know, it worked. The gamble worked and they basically did end up beating Cosby. Um, but I don't think, I don't remember the exact schedule, the time slot, but I'm pretty sure that Cheers, Cheers followed Cosby. I think Cheers was an NBC show. I think uh, Cosby was the lead into Cheers. But both okay, of but these Cheers shows, was still on Thursday nights, right? I, I mean, think it, it was, I think it was, yeah. yes. I think it, I think it yeah. was, you know, it, it was, it was getting towards the end of its run, but yes, it still was. Because let me see if I can recall, like the Simpsons came in towards the end of the run of these two venerated television institutions, which were the Cosby Show and Cheers, right? And so by the time, by about nine, I'm pretty sure that Cheers wrapped in '92. I, 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 you know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they wrapped in '92 because I know that Frasier, Frasier began in '93. That, that was just the big take, one of the other big takeaways I took from this episode, or excuse me, one of, one of the things that I remembered from my initial viewing when I was a kid was just the, uh, the, the brilliant parody scene where they're parodying the, the opening title sequence of Cheers. And I mean, look, Cheers is a classic uh, sitcom yes. and will we'll go down as being one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. I, I, I've always found it to be pretty amazing, to be perfectly honest, that for a sitcom with such, you know, wild and goofy characters as that show had the fact that it lasted, what was it? 11 seasons, I want to say. And it maintained that iconic opening title sequence of all those old school uh, images or whatever. And so what yeah. was so, what was so cool about the, uh, about the parody within the uh, flame and Moe's episode was how they parody that opening title sequence. And what's really cool about it. I noticed that this time around, like, look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an amateur cartoonist myself. I dabble. I do a little bit of cartooning. And so what's so cool about those images is all they are is just standard uh, Simpsons illustrations, 
But what they did is they added like some cross hatching effects with like uh, with various lines on the, right. on the edges of the characters just to kind of give it that old school, you know, that old school photographic effect to kind of mirror what was going on in Cheers. And I thought that was brilliant because what, when I saw it earlier as a kid, I was like, oh, they're parodying Cheers. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> they're parodying the opening sequence of Cheers. And then you watch it again. They're not doing that much. They're not putting a filter over the over the animation or anything like that. All they're doing to all these characters is just adding just a few simple crosshatch lines. And it's amazing how it worked and how <laughs> they were able to channel those uh those opening titles of cheers so wonderfully in those 30 seconds yeah no and it, and it goes right down to not only like they parody the opening and then it fades to like you know barney walking in and everyone yelling his name and cut to a a woody harrelson sort of analog uh you know and so like everybody yells barney's name as if he were norm from cheers yep. and then you've got like the woody the woody harrelson like analog wiping the glass and saying hey how you doing they do the, the they do the full on thing. They got the opening and like what would traditionally be maybe a first scene in a Cheers episode. It, yeah. It's a very it's a very well done parody. I will say that the the weakest part of the entire episode, for me at least, is Lisa's slumber party at the beginning. Now, I, it, it's clear why they're doing it. I mean, they're they're. You know, that's the thing about Simpsons is it's the show that is, to be perfectly honest, I feel like at about season four or five, maybe they should have just called the show Springfield because there are so many characters within the show that yeah. it almost became after a certain while. It's kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to see any more of Bart or whoever it may be. I want to see this character here. You know what I mean? And so it, it's interesting because, OK, it's called The Simpsons. So, of course, it wants to focus on this family. So the first, what is it, four or five minutes of the episode, you have Lisa having this slumber party. But what's interesting is that little subplot there adds, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it adds nothing to the overall, um, the overall conflict, the overall crux of the entire story. And it just completely gets jettisoned. Like we don't even see Lisa at all. For the rest of the episode and i can't help but wonder if they put that in there because the writers at the time were thinking ah shit man we gotta give lisa something to do we have to give the simpsons family something to do in this particular episode well there there could be that but i also think i mean if you if you were to if you analyze a typical simpsons episode structure and this is something that like they're very i, I want to say unique about you know the, the very few shows, I mean, shows started doing it later, but at the time that The Simpsons was doing it, and they're animated and all that, they were unique in the annals of sitcom because of their story structures. You know, at, at the start of this talk, you were you were praising this particular story and the leanness with like how 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 much how much story they're able to cram into twenty minutes and make it all work. And that's true, but also it's how much incident. And, and one thing that they do, in the show traditionally is that they ignore the traditional three act structure of a, like it, it doesn't have the typical sitcom structure. Typically the opening of an episode, the first act, if you will, before the first commercial break will typically be, have like its own little arc and it will, it will serve as the linchpin for the rest of the episode. So, in this particular case, 
essentially it's like a little self-contained story about Bart being tormented by Lisa and her friends during her sleepover, right? That's what that story is. And that event is what leads Homer to go to the bar, right? Because he's like, he's had enough. True. You know, he's True. babysitting the kids and he's like, you know what? I've had it. Like, I'm, uh, this is, I need to go get a beer. So he just like gets up and goes to the bar, right? Because he figures, fuck it. Let them have their fun. I don't care anymore. And he goes and he has his beer. And the thing is that like that, that's, you said that it doesn't really add anything to the story. No, but it sets it up. Like True. It, it, it needs to give you a reason for and it, you know, you could just start the story with Homer at the bar, because whatever, he goes there all the time. The story could just start with him inventing the drink. But for whatever reason, and I, I can't put my finger on exactly why, it just it's just richer to start with this sort of setup scene that in and of itself is very entertaining. It's a, it's a series of gags. Homer's watching Ion Springfield, right? And they set up this, eventually they'll use that as a gag later. You know, they'll bring back the whole Ion Springfield thing. I think this is the first time that the Ion Springfield um, television show makes its appearance in The Simpsons. Uh, I, you know, somebody might correct me on that, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we see it. Later on, it'll show up. But the whole, you know, the, the idea of this like info, you know, this infotainment um, kind of program with Kent Brockman, Ion Springfield, he's watching that, right? And Bart is, you know, he's bored because he like he, like Lisa's there with her friends, and obviously he doesn't feel like he wants to be part of that. And it, it's setting up the the environment, right, for this story to take place. And then that leads Homer to go to the bar and all of that. And later later on, they'll bring back the eye on Springfield motif. Mo becomes a local celebrity, and so he's gonna he shows up on the program. You know, that Homer was watching at the beginning of the episode. He shows up on the program as a celebrity after having stolen his idea. So they do they do like a callback to it. They, they double back to it. But more than anything else, it is there to set up the rest of the episode. Well, and see, and that was, that was the brilliance. I mean, and look, I, I hate comparing this to one of the greatest, you know, if not the greatest television show of all time. But that was the brilliance of Seinfeld. Because Seinfeld yeah. had this amazing writing to where it would have three to four separate plot threads or three to four separate little story arcs. They were given each character something to do. And then by the end, magically, they all intertwined and they all connected at the end. And that was that was, you know, outside of the characters of Seinfeld who were so amazing, you know, but that was one of the uh, one of the great things about watching that show was seeing how it would all connect in the end and I, I i did praise the episode and i still do you know admire how lean it is for telling this entire story in uh in the 20 minutes but what's interesting is and i'm not just doing this to to bring this back to to my podcast eric's and 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 plug no, my show but, but but what's interesting is i recently um i recently we re rewatched uh rocky four for at least the 40th time or whatever. I, it was playing at a local theater and I, I decided to take my little boy to a screening of it to write a passage. I felt like it was, it was his time that he saw yeah. one of the greatest movies of all time. And what's interesting about Rocky four is look, it's, it's my favorite of the entire uh, of the entire Rocky series because it is so cartoonish and it is so fun. But what's interesting about it is it is a clean, easy 90 minute movie 
and the story beats are so quick. There, there's literally no fat. It is, it is amazing. Like it is a movie that you can watch, you know, in one sitting clean done, you know, get it, get it done out of the way. And that's one of the things that I love about it. But going back to the whole slumber party, you know, uh, story arc, if you will, or inclusion, it kind of reminds me of the inclusion of Polly's robot in Rocky four. I mean, you have the, <laughs> the, the, the robot in Rocky four, which, okay. Yeah. It's a little cute and it's a little silly, but it really adds nothing to the, to the entire story. And, and I mean, if you've been following this on, uh, online or whatever uh stallone apparently is doing a director's cut um, yes i was gonna say that i was gonna bring that up yes yes. yeah and supposedly i don't know if he's done it or not but supposedly i think he's excising the robot from from his his cut because i think he realized look that was that was the example of ultimate 80s excess it was stupid it doesn't play well today so sure sure but you know what okay let's so so let's go on a little bit of a tangent here about rocky four for two seconds because like you're a big fan of it so am i and uh it's amazing it's It's amazing it's well it's your favorite of the series for for the reasons you said it's also my favorite of the series for slightly different reasons i think primarily it's because it's the one i grew up with oh me too yeah it was essentially my introduction to the world of rocky was rocky four i mean rocky four came out in theaters so it, I was, what, maybe about seven years old when that came out in theaters. I didn't see it in theaters. But, you know, the posters all over the place. And, you know, I, it was it was a big deal at the time. And then it was playing on cable all the time. So, mm-hmm. like, that, that was the Rocky movie that was basically always around. So I grew up with that movie. And so, yes, I'm, I'm very fond of it. And analyzing it from a filmmaking perspective, I think it's a very interesting film that I don't know to what degree Stallone was was conscious of this. I'm going to say yeah, he might have been, he might not have been, but it's almost an experimental film. You know, because that movie, as you said, it's 90 minutes, very lean, and he's obviously tapping into the whole MTV thing because that movie consists essentially of montages. I mean, it's it's barely a traditional narrative motion picture. It's a series of montages. It's like... 60% of it is montages that are either like uh, whether it's a training montage or whether it's a flashback montage of like of, of the previous films in the series or whatever it is. And that's the movie. So it's like an MTV. It's, it's very much an MTV kind of movie. So what I'm very curious about now is Stallone is preparing his director's cut and he's going to excise the robot and everything. But I'm wondering if if he's going to somehow restructure the movie. I always got the impression that he included everything. Like if you look at the film itself, there is like earlier when I said that there's really not much fat to the film at all, but there are so many music video sequences and so many training montage sequences that you kind of have to wonder if he included all those purely just to pad the runtime to get it to 90 minutes. And so that's what's going to be really interesting to see, okay, what was left on the cutting room floor? I don't think much was, to be perfectly honest. But um, it, it's going to be wild to, to, to see kind of what he adds. And look, and I'm not the first person to, to say this. I mean, I, I've heard other people make this statement as well. But what's amazing about the Rocky, uh, the entire Rocky franchise, is how it's essentially a mirror into the career 
of Sylvester Stallone and basically where he was as a superstar at that time. And so anybody who, who looks at the uh, looks at the Rocky franchise and cites four as being the one that jumped the shark or four as being the one that is the silliest and the most cartoonish and the, the you know, just the, the ultimate, you know, right angle to the entire franchise, which, look, it is. But however, if you look at where Stallone was in 1985, he was a superhero. He was the biggest star on the planet at that time. Yeah. And so it only makes sense. I mean, if you look at this series, it's going to mirror his career. It makes sense. 1985, 1986, he was it. I mean, he was like, he was the biggest star around. And so it only makes sense that, that the fourth installment in the Rocky franchise, that he is going to be pretty much the savior of America defending the free world you know what I mean? yeah 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 no yeah bring bringing change essentially uh predating glasnost you know what i mean like 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 people want to talk about ronald reagan you know mr gorbachev tear down this wall as being the big speech no you know what i think it was i think it was rocky i think it was rocky saying if i can change and you can change and anyone can change i think that that had a much bigger impact than Glasnost. Now, all kidding aside, though, uh, I, I totally see what you're saying, and you're absolutely right. Like, he was the biggest star in the world at the time when, when that film came out and everything. And I think that if any movie jumped the shark, it was actually Rocky V, because Rocky IV is essentially the culmination. It is a mirror. You look at the whole series, it is a mirror of Stallone's career. And so Rocky IV is the culmination. If there was going to be a Rocky V, it had to have been... I don't know, you know, like Rocky fighting General Zod on the moon. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, after this, where do you go? You know, it's like you, you take Rocky into space. You do, it had to have become even more ridiculous. Well, see, and I'm going to challenge that actually slightly because I actually think Rocky V, again, if you want to mirror Stallone's career, I think Rocky V actually makes the most sense because if you really think about it, Okay, around 1990 to 92 or so, Stallone was kind of in his in this experimental area where he was trying comedy and some of the worst reviewed films of his entire career came out around this period. You had he did Oscar, he did Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, which are um I've heard some people actually dig Oscar. I I never really cared for it, but Stop or My Mom Will Shoot is abysmal. And so oh, yeah. if you think about it, Okay, so he's doing some of the worst films of his career, trying to find his footing, trying to, you know, try new genres or whatever. And so if you look at Rocky Five, where is he? Well, he his character is back in the dumps. He's back in Philadelphia. He's lost everything. He's lost yeah. all his millions and he's back right where he started. So I actually think, again, going with my um, analogy, uh, I, I think it actually makes sense. But, you know, you were talking about the final speech at the end of uh, Rocky Four, And can we just say, I noticed this on my most recent viewing, okay? Here's what's amazing to me. He, he makes this big speech about how, okay, if you can change, I can change, and we can change, we can all accept one another. But I'm thinking to myself, Rocky, you didn't go to Russia to represent America. You went to Russia to avenge your friend. Would it have made more sense in that final speech him to say, this one's for Apollo? You know what I mean? <laughs> it, the the goalposts changed. You know, like the, the thing is that the movie, it, it, it's about that, but then in the end, no, it's about more than that. It's about, you know, it's about change. It's yeah. about Glasnost. It's about Glasnost. It's about, you know, it's about extending the olive branch. It's about opening things up. 
All right, well, now to bring it back to the Simpsons, what, what you were saying about, um, also what you were saying about sitcoms, you brought up Seinfeld. And, and you're absolutely right. Seinfeld is probably one, it's definitely one of the greatest television shows of all time and absolutely one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. And what it did with the sitcom form sort of paved the way for tons of stuff that came later. And I think, though, and I don't know to what degree this is conscious of them, but I do think that The Simpsons paved the way for stuff like Seinfeld to exist. And it's part of what I was saying, how, like, The Simpsons eventually, towards the end of the 90s, maybe it sort of lost its thunder because other shows started doing what The Simpsons had done. And they started doing it. They began to pick up some... Um, ideas from the Simpsons essentially of how to do their storytelling. And I think Seinfeld is one of those shows because the fact that it bucked the formula, you know, it's a sitcom that's kind of the anti sitcom. And in a way the Simpsons was already doing this in the way that they, they told their stories where well, you talked about how Seinfeld has all these plots running at the same time that eventually come together in the end. And that's so unique for a sitcom and it's true. And then later, you know, shows that picked up, uh, from that, you know, shows like Arrested Development or whatever else. So The Simpsons did it first. And I, I do think they deserve some credit because you, you look at the, at the, you know, sort of the, the environment, the climate. When The Simpsons first came out, the late 80s, early 90s, sitcoms were very formulaic. You know, TGIF um, was very much an established sort of pattern for sitcoms. And even the sitcoms that were competing against it that are, you know, venerated television institutions in their own right, you know, Cosby Show or Cheers or whatever, were very formulaic sitcoms in their own right. So The Simpsons began to buck that trend, particularly by doing this sort of ambitious storytelling where you have, where you sort of start with a vignette that sort of sets up the rest of the episode. And then from there, you sort of take the story in all these different wild directions, which is what eventually shows like Seinfeld would do. But I do think, I would say that The Simpsons did it first. I, I really do think that. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. I mean, but, you know, look, I, this was a, uh, it, it, it was a fun episode. I mean, there wasn't, uh, there really wasn't much, much to it. You know, like we keep saying, it was a lean uh, story structure. But there are some, uh, some, in my opinion, some iconic moments that uh, certainly has, have stood out to me for years. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I mean, was this the first? Was this the first episode episode that gave Mo like more to do that was essentially revolved around th this particular character? Yeah, definitely. Another another kind of first. It's not really first first, but uh, this is the first though. You know, Michael Jackson opened the season, but in this episode they brought in Aerosmith to play themselves and be sort of like you know a, a big a big guest act. Which was the big thing that was uh, promoted when the episode aired. It was all about, oh, Aerosmith are guest starring on The Simpsons. And That's this, right. is, this is 91. Uh, it's before Get a Grip. You know, it, it predates Get a Grip by a couple of years. But Aerosmith was kind of still riding high on their comeback. You know, their late 80s comeback that they sort of experienced. You know, Pump was still sort of in the, in the charts. It was still in the charts. You know, uh, Pump, which was... The 89 album was still sort of burning up the charts. They were they were riding high on their comeback. And so, I mean, I don't know. Like, What are your feelings on Aerosmith as a band? 
you know, I, I've always dug Aerosmith. I've seen them actually in concert a couple times. Um, they, they put on an amazing show. That was something else, too, that um, now that you mention it, I had completely forgotten about. But I remember Fox actually doing that a few times where they would promote the hell out of a out of, out of a Simpsons episode, out of an upcoming Simpsons episode because of the uh, celebrity guest appearance that was going to be on when in the end, not only did the episode not even revolve around that particular celebrity guest appearance, but it was more or less just a cameo because I remember, yeah, now that you mentioned this, I remember Fox promoting that. I remember them promoting uh, Elizabeth Taylor saying Maggie's first first words or whatever and you're thinking the entire episode is going to be about that and then yeah. you know she, she comes in with one word at the end i mean yeah fox was pretty notorious for um in terms of their marketing and everything like that pulling the uh, the rug under you because i think they knew look regardless this was a huge hit for them a huge show they were going to get people tuning in on on thursday nights real quick actually before i forget the other thing that that i noticed from this episode that um you know, I really noticed it now, and maybe it's because, you know, we're, we're in this pandemic thing and we're seeing, you know, uh, bars and restaurants closing or opening at, you know, 25 to 50 percent capacity and everything. But Mo yeah. made a comment early in the episode that that really kind of uh, uh, took me aback and gave me pause, which which is weird to hear from like a Simpsons episode, if you will. But he he tells Homer um, when, when Homer wants to get a beer, if you remember, he tells Homer, what is it? Uh, uh, I, I haven't paid. I haven't paid the, uh, the the tab for this particular beer. So as a result, they they pulled the plug or whatever. And for whatever reason, for me, that was really interesting because I think that's one thing that kind of gets lost by the uh, by the public, especially by consumers. You know, when we go into restaurants or when we go into into various bars and everything like that, I don't think people realize like in order for a restaurant or a bar to run successfully they are paying everybody. I mean, they are paying various liquor distributors. They are paying um, various, um, you know, various breweries and, and everything like that to keep the place, you know, to, to have those, those various beverages and everything like that in stock. And so anytime someone bitches about, you know, how much their, their pint costs or how much a, a pitcher is or whatever, if you think about it, like, I, it's no wonder a lot of these restaurants, you know, end up not surviving or are folding, especially in like something that we've been in the pandemic when they are having to, you know, pay Budweiser and Coors and perhaps yep. Blue Ribbon or whoever it is. I mean, it's really and what was wild is just hearing Mo say that I was like, man, like it, he's right. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, it's not something that I thought about, but you're absolutely right. It's an issue, and especially now, right? And one thing about that that's kind of funny, though, is that he's out of beer. And you go like, so that implies that he's only got, like, one brand of beer. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> all he has. Like, literally, Duff is the only thing he has. And I go like, ah, yeah, it's a small-town bar for you. But it's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. He's out of beer because that's the only beer he sells. That's um, pretty sad. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, it is sad. It is sad. And it is it, it, it is intriguing to sort of analyze, look at that from like a socioeconomic perspective um, within a realistic context. And that it made you think about that, you know, that it made you think about the way restaurants operate, the way the service industry in general operates and restaurants, bars, clubs, 
and what that means. You know, here we are in a situation where we're coming up on a year and a half with a lot of these places not operating, you know, and it really makes you, it, it really puts into context just why this pandemic is going to damage so many businesses. And that's really, that's really fucked up. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because okay, I think uh, I think buffets as we know them, I mean that that's done. I think here in the next ten years we'll be talking about hey, remember when there were buffets when you know you go into a place that just had all sorts of food lined up? I think those are done. What's interesting is I don't know if you have them out where uh, where where you are at, but you know we have uh, a lot of uh, businesses, a lot of places where it's like a. Um, it's kind of like a, a an adult arcade, if you will. That, that sounded actually kind of pornographic. No, it's like <laughs> a, it, it's like a a bar and grill that sells burgers and beer and whatnot. But then they also have video games and pinball machines and skee ball and everything like that for sure. adults. But you also bring your uh, your kids there. Like we have a David Buster's and um, various other chains that have that. And I was watching a news report, and a lot of those they are they're on life support and. Many of those actually may not make it because if you think about it, kind of going back to what we talked about with Mo, okay, these places, not only are they having to, you know, pay the various liquor distributors and everything, but they're also having to pay the, um, the vendors of those, of those video games and those machines, you know what I mean? Yeah. And if they're not getting, if they're not getting business of customers coming in, then there's no way they can even make the overhead on something like that. And so... I don't know, man. Uh, hopefully, maybe that's a good closing uh, for this episode, but maybe hopefully some of these businesses will find a Flaming Mo drink that can revive the economy. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I, well, I can tell you this much. I mean, we, we don't have any places like that down here where I live in Bolivia. However, I'm a native New Yorker, and so like I, I frequently travel back to the U.S. and hang around New York and uh, mainly like around Williamsburg. And one of my favorite places to go is the Barcade over there in Williamsburg. And I'll tell you this right now. I have no idea. I haven't thought about it until you just brought it up. But I will be very, very sad if Barcade closes. Because that is, I, that's one of my haunts. That's where I go. You know, like no, yeah. nothing better on a, like, you know, on a lazy afternoon than head over to the Barcade, you know, grab yourself a pint and play some tapper or like, just like have a good time. And I'm going to miss that tremendously if that's not around when I'm next time I'm in New York. I will be very sad. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, look, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me. And uh, yeah, you know, this is a, a ton of fun. Thank you. It's a, it's a good good talk we had about uh, socioeconomic realities of Springfield <laughs> and uh, other things. But it, it, it was fun to talk Rocky about. Rocky Four. Yeah. Rocky Four. God. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> but uh, I do want to thank you for coming, and I want to throw it back to you now. To, uh, so you can plug whatever you need to plug so that listeners know where else they can find you. Well, I, I, do, I do appreciate that. Yeah. Um, no. So if you uh, if anyone is interested in uh, hearing more of my uh, my musings and my ramblings, um, I, I do host uh, I Must Break This podcast, which is a fan podcast that looks at the uh, at the, in my opinion, fascinating career of uh, the great thespian that is Mr. Dolph Lundgren. And what I do is we, me and a special guest, uh, go in chronological order, uh, reviewing every one of the films in uh, Mr. Lundgren's filmography. We, of course, started uh, at 1985 with Rocky IV, and it's hard to believe now, but we are approaching 2010 with The Expendables, which was... Uh, 
which was Dolph's big theatrical comeback. And so, and sandwiched in between the, uh, the film review episodes, I've been very fortunate, but uh, I always have a special uh, interview um, where I've gotten to speak with directors and actors and screenwriters and um, stunt performers and everybody who has uh, had a hand in uh, working alongside Lundgren and making these movies. So uh, please check it out. And thank you for, for letting me plug there. I want to second that recommendation because it is a, a really fun podcast. And uh, I do want to mention that uh, frequent Simpsons Countdown guest Chris Prentice has appeared on several episodes of the podcast. And you guys have had some great discussions so, you know, I, I recommend that people track it down because it is a lot of fun to listen to. And I'm going to be providing a link in the episode description. So, you know, thanks again, Sean. It was really great to have you. And uh, I look forward to a future conversation. Flaming Mouth. Uh, yes, I'm looking for a friend of mine. Last name Jazz, first name Hugh. Ah, uh, hold on, I'll check. Uh, Hugh Jazz. Oh, somebody check the men's room for a Hugh Jazz. Uh, I'm Hugh Jazz. Telephone. Hello, this is Hugh Jazz. Uh, hi. Who's this? Bart Simpson. What can I do for you, Bart? Uh, look, I'll level with you, mister. This is a crank call that sort of backfired, and I'd like to bail out right now. All right. Better luck next time. What a nice young man. So that's it for this week's installment of The Simpsons Countdown. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this, consider showing your support. It's really very simple. Give us a like or a favorable rating. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Anchor FM, and other podcasting platforms. So adding a brief review, if possible, might actually help boost the podcast's profile. And if it isn't too much trouble, please do share this with all your friends on social media. Speaking of social media, you can follow the Eric's Antoine Network on Facebook or subscribe to it on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Eric's Antoine Net, and feel free to find me and follow me on Letterboxd, where I frequently post film reviews you may or may not agree with. That's up to you. I also heartily recommend seeking out Sean's I Must Break This Podcast to hear all about the films of Dolph Lundgren, and I'll be providing a link in the episode description. I'm Eric's Antoine, and I'll be back in a few days to discuss Burns Verkaufen der Kraftwerk, in which Mr. Burns sells the power plant to a bunch of Germans, and Homer gets lost in the land of chocolate. The delightful Jim Laskowski of the Directors Club will be sitting down with me to talk about that, and I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, stay safe out there, get vaccinated if you can, and I'll see you soon. down and you wanna end your life bills to pay a dead-end job and problems with the wife but don't throw in the towel cause there's a place right down the block where you can drink your misery away Just a flaming mow away. Happiness is just a flaming mow away.
How's the world treating you, Mr. Gumble? Uh, 